Lord willing, we will finish the book of Jonah this morning. We're going to try to work through the entire chapter and give you some things, uh, three principles, three truths, I think, that are uh, revealed to us in this fourth chapter. And just hope that they're helpful for you, that they will encourage you um, as we look at Jonah and in so many ways uh, see ourselves. Jonah is truly a reflection of a, a believer who has um, veered away. He's uh, uh, run, if you will, from the Lord and refused to do what the Lord called him to do. And the Lord is restoring him to himself. That's really the, the story of the book of Jonah is God, God restoring Jonah to himself. And it's always, in, it's always interesting to think about the fact that what we remember about Jonah is really two things. Most people who read little stories in the Bible we remember, first of all, what what do we remember? The fish, right? And the fish is the first part of Jonah that we remember. The fish is well known and and uh, you know maybe more notable than Jonah himself. But we remember the fish, and oftentimes we remember Nineveh and the fact that all of Nineveh gets converted. However, the uh, I think the true focus, if you were going to press the author's intent of writing the book of Jonah and giving us this story, it's really more about God bringing a wayward child back to himself. That's the story. And uh, you find God's name mentioned in, I think, 39 of the 48 verses, and you find Jonah's name mentioned about half of the verses in the book, and you don't find any details when it comes to Nineveh, when it comes to the the mariners, when it comes to all of those things, you find no names and no details. It's not really about them. Even though they are products of God working out his will in his people's lives, God bringing a wayward child back to himself, they're really not the focus. The focus in this story is God restoring a wayward child. God bringing Jonah back to a state of repentance. And, and, and I would even suggest this, and I might may be stretching a little bit here in regards to what the text actually says, but I, believe it, I, I don't believe it would be stretching it too far to say that God set up this situation knowing that Jonah would refuse to go to Nineveh. That he chose Nineveh knowing that Jonah would refuse to go to Nineveh because there was something in, inside of Jonah that needed to be brought to the, brought to the surface. There was something about Jonah that God knew that Jonah didn't maybe even know himself, or maybe he knew it and just began, he had just pressed it down, right? And so God has to first bring out Jonah's re- rebellion, bring out Jonah's um, sin before he can start to deal with that sin. So it is my belief, and, and you can, we, can, we can talk about it later if you want to, that God set this whole event up to, to expose Jonah and to bring Jonah to, I believe, to repentance. He, he's working to bring Jonah to repentance. I, I say all of that because, honestly, if, we look at the, if you look at the way that the, the, the text flows, if the, if the story is about Nineveh, the story ends at the end of chapter 3. There is no chapter 4. There is no need for chapter number 4 if the story is about Nineveh. Nineveh repents. Everybody in Nineveh is saved. In Jonah's mind, he has fulfilled his purpose. In Jonah's mind, he's done what he was called to do. He's like, hey, look, I went to Nineveh. Everybody repented. Let's, you know, good, done deal. But that wasn't the, that wasn't the intention of the text. 
And that's why we have chapter number four, which chapter number four restores our focus back to whom? It's back to Jonah. Because the whole thing is about Jonah. God is bringing Jonah to a place of repentance. God is bringing Jonah to a place of restoration. And we all need to experience that. So we're going to look at this fourth chapter and we're going to see some principles or some characteristics of God bringing Jonah back to himself in repentance, that we saw repentance in Nineveh. So God, it's interesting because we saw repentance from the, from the mariners. We saw repentance in Nineveh. Both of those are peripheral. But you know what both of those show us? They both show us what repentance looks like. They both show us what real, true repentance... So God's not leaving any, any room for argument for Jonah to say, well, that's not true repentance. He's already shown him what true repentance was when Nineveh basically goes into a state of, of inactivity and sits in sackcloth and ashes and stops working and stops laboring and doesn't eat or drink. And that's the essence of repentance. So when God calls Jonah to repentance in the fourth chapter, there's no argument about what does repentance look like, right? It's, it's clear. He's, you know, Jonah, read chapter 3 again because it's clear what repentance looks like. And having a proper understanding of repentance is super important. It's super important in this culture today because people have completely confused it with like having a, 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 a guilty conscience or having a bad feeling because you got caught because you robbed the bank and they caught you and you felt bad about it. I mean, that's Judas' type of repentance, which he goes out and hangs himself because he's not repentant in his heart. He's sorry what he did, but he's not repentant. And so understanding the, 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 the meaning, the, the essence of repentance from chapter number three is going to be important to Jonah's repentance in chapter number four. So I want to start by asking you guys a question, okay? Have you ever been in a situation where it seemed like you had arrived, finished, or won? It seemed like you were done, only to find out there is something undone something incomplete or something missing. I thought of a couple of illustrations uh, like uh, of the frustration or the, the frustration or the, the disappointment that comes along when, with putting a puzzle together. If you've ever put a puzzle together, there's a level of elation that comes when you get down to the last five pieces and you put them all in place and you realize that it needed six pieces, right? And you go from elation and excitement of, oh my goodness, I'm almost done, to, oh my goodness, where's the last piece to the puzzle? And then you spend the next week looking all over your house for this last piece of the puzzle. You guys are laughing because you've all been there before, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a major letdown when you feel like you've accomplished the task that was set before you only to discover that the task is not finished yet. I, I've experienced that recently in, in my project that I'm doing for my uh, graduation next week where I got to a state where in January I handed in a paper that was 218 pages long and I didn't hear anything until April, April 1st. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if I'm not hearing anything, everything must be hunky-dory, right? Only to, on April 1st, on April 1st, right? That's kind of interesting. <laughs> on April 1st, to get a conversation with my professor who says, basically, I have to rewrite most of the paper. 
I sent him an email later and I said, I, I said, I, I was expecting at some point for you to say April Fool's. <laughs> and I said, but that didn't happen. And we kind of laughed about that back and forth. But uh, yeah, I was hoping that he would say that, but he didn't. And so I, I was put in this state of like, okay, now I have to start this process of, of recapturing what my thinking was and remembering all of the things that I had studied and starting to put it back into, into play. And and by God's grace, he's helped me, and I, I think I will uh, still finish. But there was, a, there was a letdown. There was this, okay, I don't know if I want to keep going type of an attitude because this is, the, I thought I had reached this, uh, this end, but there was still more to be done. There was still more work to be done to, be, to make it to the, to the end goal. And so we've all felt that, and whether you put puzzles together or you have written a paper and been told that you need to write it again, you have dealt with that at some level. So you know what it's like. You know what the feeling is that you feel like you've reached the plateau or you've reached the goal and only to be told that you didn't and you still have work to be done. Elijah ex- experienced this in 1 Kings 19 when he defeats the, 400 and prop- the 450 prophets of Baal. And he, you know, he, he has this uh, extraordinary experience and he calls out to God. I mean, this guy is like connected to God and the prophet of the Lord. And, and he, he connects with God in such a way that he just says a very short prayer. And God leaps fire from heaven and sweeps up the altar. And, and all the 450 uh, prophets of Baal, their heads are knocked off. God, uh, they all surrender and they all uh, acknowledge defeat. And, and um, Elijah, Elijah chops all their heads off. And then he comes down and he, to him, he says to himself, well, I've... I've accomplished the task. I, I'm done, God. I've, I've defeated your enemies. I have conquered 450 false prophets of Baal. And Jezebel says, this day will not, go, will not come to an end lest the same thing happens to Elijah, right? And uh, Elijah runs out into the wilderness to hide from Jezebel. You know, he just not, he's just defeated 450 prophets of Baal or false prophets, but now... He's running from Jezebel. She was a very intense woman in the Bible. Very, very logical to run and hide from her if you study her story. But, uh, but he does. He runs and he, he says to himself, he comes, to, um, he comes into the wilderness and he prays to the Lord. And here's what he prays in 1 Kings 19. He says, he said he went on a journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die saying, is it not enough? Is it not enough now, O Lord? Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. And so Elijah felt that. He felt that like, I've, I've done so much. I've, I've reached this place, and, and, and can't I be done, Lord? Can't I have some rest? Can't I have some uh, a time of reprieve? And can't I be done? And the Lord obviously had some more lessons for him to experience. Well, this is the same case with Jonah. As a matter of fact, you could compare the stories of getting underneath the tree and sitting underneath it in the shade. I mean, the stories are very similar, and God is doing a very similar thing where God is still working on Jonah, even though Jonah believes that he is, he's finished, right? That's the disappointment sometimes in the Christian life when you think that you've arrived at a certain state in your Christian maturity or whatever, and God says you haven't, right? Who knows better? Who knows better? God knows better. 
But is it disappointing in, in, in Elijah's life and Jonah's life, Moses experiences something very similar? It's disappointing when you feel like you've, you've reached a certain plateau, you've overcome a certain obstacle or a certain hurdle in your life only to face another one, right? Anybody been there before? That's the more disappointing thing, isn't it? You, you fight a battle and you think, okay, I mean, it's almost like you think of those war movies or those war scenarios where you, you come face to face with the enemy and the enemy has this like secondary army waiting behind the hill and you, do, you wipe them all out only to look up on the top of the hill and there's a whole nother uh, drove of them coming in for you to fight. And you look at that and it's just defeating, isn't it? It's discouraging. That's Jonah. That's where Jonah's at right now. His heart, he's disheartened, if you will, or discouraged because he feels like he's reached, this, he's reached this goal, accomplished the task, but he hasn't. There's more to be done. And so Jonah understands what this feels like. Something is missing. Even though Jonah feels like he's reached the goal, something is missing. Something is incomplete. Something is undone. We're going to discover what that is. Note this, okay? This is very important to the process. Chapter number one, Jonah, chapter number one, God gets Jonah's attention, right? A storm comes, God gets Jonah's attention. Chapter number two, God gets Jonah's respect. He's thrown into the water. The Bible says that uh, he is swallowed up by the fish. He has Jonah actually in that moment, in, in that season, comes to a state of recognizing that God is in control still, right? Okay? He recognizes that God is sovereign, that God is powerful, more powerful than he is, that God is just, that God is holy. Jonah comes to realize that. Go, Jonah comes to recognize that fearing God is the right thing to do. So chapter number one, God gets Jonah's attention. Chapter number two, God gets Jonah's respect. Chapter number three, God gets Jonah's obedience. Chapter number three, what does Jonah do? He obeys God, right? He goes to Nineveh. He preaches the message of the gospel. And, and the, whole, the whole city, the whole town gets saved. The whole city gets saved. So God has Jonah's attention. God has Jonah's respect. God has Jonah's obedience, right? So we think, and Jonah thinks, that I, I'm done. I, I'm a, I've accomplished my task. I've done everything that God has set forth for me to do. But what did God not have of Jonah? What is clear in the fourth chapter, we'll read it here in just a moment, that God did not have of Jonah. God did not have Jonah's heart. Everything about Jonah, God had his attention, his respect, his obedience. And sometimes we would think that that's enough, right? We've arrived when God has our respect and he has our obedience and we fear him. We think that we're there. But what God, what God did not have of Jonah is God did not have Jonah's heart. And so God is truly pressing through this, through this narrative in, in the book of Jonah to get, not, not just to get Jonah's attention, not just to get Jonah's obedience and respect, but God is pressing so that he can have Jonah's heart. Because that is what matters. Isn't it true sometimes that when you run away from God and God, God gets your attention by a storm and, or a, a trial or a tribulation that you, you pay attention to Him? 
Isn't that sometimes easy to do? It's like, okay, God, you got my attention. I see that you're putting me through this stuff, and I don't really know why, but all right, I get it. I get it. I deserve it, whatever. God sometimes can get our attention when, when we are wayward from him. And sometimes he can get our respect, too, where that we fear him. We realize that, hey, he's judging us. He's, he's condemning us. So, yeah, God, I get it. You're, you're just and holy, and I am guilty. I get that. And even sometimes we get, as a Christian, we say, well, I'll just do what he says. Maybe that will help me get out of this situation if I just do what he says. And then we do like Jonah does it. The Bible literally says in chapter number, um, chapter, at the end of chapter number two, Jonah literally says, Lord, I will pay my vows to you. I mean, he's literally saying, he's literally pointing to the fact that, Lord, I am going to obey your commands. I'm going to obey, submit to the things that I have, that I have vowed for you to do because I get that salvation belongs to you. But what Jonah doesn't have, and we see uh, presented to us in chapter number four, or what God doesn't have is God doesn't have Jonah's heart. So let's read it. If you guys want to read with me, I want to read the entire chapter, beginning actually in verse 10 of the previous. He says, when God saw what they had done, how they had turned from their wicked ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Verse number one, but it, pleased, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my own country? That is why I made haste to go to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah basically identifies that he knew what God's character was like. He knew that God was going to bring deliverance. He knew that God was going to show these people mercy, but he didn't want him to. Jonah did not want God to show Nineveh mercy. And that's why he ran to go to Tarshish. Because Jonah didn't want God to show him mercy. And the, the, the text literally says that it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very hot. This is, a, this is a term, I mean, you think about this for a moment. His attitude towards God, it's really reflective of back in the first chapter. He's got the same attitude. He's done all that he's supposed to do. He's reverenced God, he's respected God, God's gotten his attention, but his attitude hasn't changed at all. It says in verse number three, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in a shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort and Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Just a note here, if you notice that God appoints these things, he appointed the fish in Jonah 1 or Jonah 2, he appointed the fish, he appointed the storm, he appointed the plant, he appointed the worm. Who's in control of all this? God's in control of it all. God is sovereign also notice that he was exceedingly angry with the Lord, and now he's exceedingly happy with the Lord because he has what he wants, right? 
Now, how often is that the way it is for us? Give me comfort, give me shade, give me what I want, Lord, and I'll be happy with you. Give me what I don't want, Lord, and I'll be angry with you. But his emotions, it's interesting because what the text is pointing out is that his emotions are extreme emotions. They're exceeding emotions. It's like either top of the mountain or bottom of the valley, but never is there any consistency. He says, but when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed again a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He asked him the same question again, doesn't he? This time it's about the plant versus being about his anger, about God's grace and mercy. He says, do you do well to be angry about this plant? He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And would and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. We note this just real quick here. We note, number one, that the idea of right hand from left has two meanings in the Scriptures. It can mean that they were too young to understand, so there'd be 120,000 people who were too young to understand their right hand from their left hand. But it's actually more common in Scripture when it says that they didn't understand their right right from their left, that they were not discerning of the truth. They were not able to see good or evil or discern good or evil, so they were, not, they were not taught or educated in the truth of the gospel. They were not educated in the truth of things that are right or wrong. So either way that you take that, there's a lot of people in Nineveh that don't know the truth. There's a lot of people in Nineveh who don't know the truth. And even he points out cattle here again, because the cattle, he's just pointing to that whole package again. He's pointing to the through the whole picture. He wants them to see the whole picture. He's really arguing from a lesser to a greater because plants are less than animals, are less than people. So he argues that your your pity over plants is, is unfounded when you have no pity over animals or people. Your pity over this plant dying, it doesn't make any sense because there are people who you'd like to see die and there are cows that you would like to see die. So he's arguing from the lesser to the greater, and uh, it's a very common argument in the, in the um, Hebrew world, and so it's not uncommon to see that happen. So I want you to look at three things, to give you these three things and some sub-thoughts to share along the way. Number one is the signs of an unrepentant heart. Signs of an unrepentant heart. What we notice, first of all, is, is that Jonah has anger. He shows anger. He He, uh, in the first few verses of that, his anger, his his hotness towards the Lord is based upon the fact that the Lord did something that Jonah did not want him to do, or that the Lord didn't do something that Jonah did want him to do. If we were to ask Jonah what he would like to see happen to the Ninevites, he would, first of all, say definitely not see them get, get converted. But I think on top of that, Jonah's heart towards the Ninevites would have been such that he would have liked to see them judged. He would have loved to have seen Nineveh, you know, uh, be condemned and and uh, uh, destroyed. 
That would have been Jonah's heart and Jonah's attitude. Matter of fact, I think when Jonah went up onto the mountain and built that little uh little chateau for himself or whatever you want to call it to watch down over Nineveh. I believe that he was watching down to see if God would change his mind. Well, he wanted to see Nineveh judged. And that was his attitude. That was his heart. So he starts off with anger because God has shown Nineveh mercy instead of God showing Nineveh grace. And you will note this as well. At the beginning of the story, Jonah is angry at Nineveh. At the end of the story, who is Jonah angry with? Jonah's anger has switched from Nineveh to God because now God has done something that Jonah doesn't want, didn't want God to do. So he is angry at God because he questions God. He's challenging God's integrity in this situation. And I want you to think about this with me for a moment. Sometimes in life, we don't doubt God's strength. Sometimes in life, we don't doubt his ability. Sometimes we don't doubt his grace or his mercy or his sovereignty. But where we often doubt God is in his wisdom. What Jonah doubted about God was that God was doing the right thing. That God was smart enough to know what the right thing in that situation was. And so Jonah questions God. Jonah doubts God. Jonah gets angry with God because Jonah is truly saying to God in his anger, God, you don't know what's right. It's really, un- it's, really, it's really crazy to think about that, but that is literally what Jonah is saying. I get that you're merciful. I knew that from the beginning. He even described the very mercy that he hated to see Jonah, uh, the Ninevites expe- experience. But Jonah didn't think God knew what was best. If God doesn't know what's best and Jonah is questioning God, who does Jonah think knows what's best? He thinks he does. He thinks he does. Jonah shows anger in two, for two reasons. Number one is that God didn't consider his desires. And number two, that God didn't consider his feelings. So we see anger, number one. Number two, in regards to the signs of an unrepentant heart. The second thing that we see is Jonah becomes fatalistic. What does Jonah say? Kill me. Take my life. Literally what Jonah is saying at this point is simply this. If you're going to bless the Ninevites and not do what I think you should do, I would rather die. God, if you're not going to give me what I want and do what I want, but you're going to do what you want and and give what you want to give, then I would just rather not be here. I mean, in in some ways, we would call this a pity party, right? (laughs) We'd call this a pity party. But that's Jonah's attitude. I mean, he's like pressing God in in so many ways, just, just showing how untrusting he is. How far, I mean, Jonah is literally showing in this last chapter how far he is from God. I mean, farther than just running to, to, to Tarshish to, to, to not go to Nineveh and preach the gospel, Jonah is way far away from God. He doesn't want anything to do with it. He doesn't want anything to do with this world anymore. This is a prophet, folks. This is a prophet of God. This is not somebody that you think, well, I get that, you know, he's... Hitler or something like that. I get it. This is a prophet. 
fatalistic. When we don't get our way, we just want to quit. We want to die. Moses did this. Moses said the same thing when he felt overwhelmed by the children of Israel. Elijah felt this when he felt overwhelmed by Jezebel chasing him. And Jonah feels this when he doesn't get his way with God and Nineveh. So fatalism, number two. Number three is bitterness. It goes right along with going up and setting up this tent. What, did Jonah, what was Jonah expressing in this statement of going up and wanting to watch Nineveh and wanting to see them be destroyed? He was showing the bitterness of his heart. He's hoping God would change his mind and bring destruction on the Jewish people. And so he goes up there because he wants to see the destruction that they experience because he hates them so much inside of his heart. He hates them so much in his heart. Listen to what Hebrews 12, 15 says. See to it that no one defiles, no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness string, uh, springs up inside of them and causes trouble and many become defiled. Jonah's bitterness has, has grown so great that he wants to see the destruction of other people enough to set up a, to set up a tent, a tent, a, a little tabernacle for himself. Literally, the Hebrew word used here is the word that we use for tabernacle. He sets up a tabernacle for himself to sit there and watch and see if God's going to bring judgment on the Ninevites. I mean, that's extreme bitterness, isn't it? He goes on. uh, The fourth thing is he's unthankful. He's unable to recognize God's mercy in his own life. He's unable to see God's goodness in his own life. We see this as, as he explains it throughout the story of the of the, of the plant, Jonah doesn't even appreciate the plant. Like he got a plant for one day and it was great and he, was, he, was in the sh- and he doesn't ever thank the Lord for it. All he does is complain when the plant is taken away. He never sees the mercy that God has shown him. All he sees is, is that God is showing other people mercy that they don't deserve. And folks, listen to me. This is a very dangerous place to get in our Christian life where we start noticing that, that other people are getting shown mercy, but we're getting, the good, we're getting God's goodness because we deserve it. You will, you will, and I will, when we come to the full gra- grasp of how much mercy God has shown us, we will desire that mercy for other people. But Jonah has no desire for the mercy of other people because he has no recognition of the fact that God has shown him and the Jewish people great mercy. And God has shown us great mercy. And when we look at somebody else that, that is, is evil and we want to see them judged, the Bible says in the Old Testament, uh, God has no pleasure in the death of the saints, but he would rather that they would repent and turn. They are unthankful, unable to recognize God's mercy in their lives. And then the the last thing that identifies the last sign, if you will, in this text, this is not a a full expression of all of the things that happen when we we are um, away from God, but it's Jonah's story. The last one is simply unmerciful. He's unmerciful, unwilling to show other people any mercy, unwilling to desire other people's blessings. Matthew 5 and verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And the Lord points out to Jonah, 
his lack of mercy on the people by drawing a direct uh, contrast with his mercy towards the plant. You think about it with me for a moment. I, I want you to think about your garden in your backyard. And I want you to think about how sad it is when you plant something and it dies and it doesn't come up like it ought. Especially those of you who labor hard to take care of those plants and the tree huggers even further than that really love those plants a lot, right? And they don't want, and then that, that tree dies and they, and they create a ceremony over that tree and they pity that tree. What he is saying to Jonah is, Jonah, that's you. You're a gardener that's planted a plant and that plant came up and it died. And you're, you're more sorrowful over that than you are over the souls of the Ninevites who are people and their cows that are more important than your plants that eat your plants. Because why? Listen to me. Because a wayward person from God is somebody that doesn't know how to show mercy to other people. They're more concerned about their things than they are about people's souls. And they mourn when they lose a car. They mourn when they lose a plant. They mourn when they lose a house. And they have no sorrow when they lose a soul. That's what he's pointing out to Jonah. So I want you to capture this with me. Jonah shows all of these things. And here's what I want to say to you. It is obvious from Jonah's attitude that God has his attention, God has his respect, God has his obedience, but God doesn't have his heart. And how do we see that? We see that by Jonah's emotions. We see it by Jonah's motivations. Anger, bitterness, frustration. You may be here this morning and you may be doing all of the right things. God may have your attention. God may have your respect. God may even have your obedience. But your attitude is that you're angry when you do it. Your attitude is you're frustrated when you're doing it. Your attitude is you're bitter when you're doing it. Your attitude is unmerciful to those who you are actually serving. Your attitude reveals where your heart is. And what God wants of Jonah and what God wants of you is not just your attention and your submission and your obedience. God wants your heart. It's what he's going for. It's what he's pressing for. The Bible says in 1 John 5, verse 2 and 3, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey his commandments. For this is God's commandments that we love, and his commandments are not burdensome. We know, and you can know this morning, if you're astray from God, not necessarily by what you're doing, but by your attitude towards what you're doing. Not necessarily by whether or not you serve other people, but by your attitude towards serving those people. These are our emotions. There are deep down core who we are that you can cover up really well with actions. And this is what the Lord exposes about Jonah. Number two, let's look at God for a moment. The, the second point is schooling an unrepentant heart, our schooling of an unrepentant heart. 
How does an unrepentant heart dealt with? How does God deal with an unrepentant heart? And I just want you to think about it with me for a moment because, because God is very gentle in this process. He's very gentle in this process because, listen, God could have come down with a harshness towards Jonah and God could have gotten more obedience out of Jonah, right? Because law does not get a hold of the heart, does it? Law gets a hold of the actions. What gets a hold of the heart is graciousness. So in all of this, God has every right to come down on Jonah like a freight train, right? He has every right to condemn Jonah. He has every right to knock Jonah off that hill and watch him, ro- watch him roll down to the... He has every right to do that because Jonah has, a, has rebelled against him. But, but, but God knows this, and I think we need to learn this, that we and God knows that you don't reach somebody's heart by knocking them. You might change their actions, but you reach their heart by being gracious to them. And so Jonah, deserving what he showed the Ninevites, Jonah deserved the very attitude that he showed the Ninevites from God, right? Was Jonah any less evil than they were, especially at this moment? No. But yet God shows Jonah what Jonah ought to be. Let me give you four thoughts. You can write these down. Number one, God is an example to Jonah. In other words, God treats Jonah in the way that he expects Jonah to treat the Ninevites. He is compassionate. He is gentle. He is patient. He is conversational with Jonah. All of these things God does to Jonah because he expects them from Jonah. Matthew 7 and verse 12 tells us the golden rule. He says, whatever you wish other people to do, do it. So who better of an example for God to say to Jonah, hey, Jonah, be merciful to these people. Be gracious to these people. Preach the gospel to these people. God then manifests that to Jonah by how he treats an unworthy sinner, how he treats an unworthy people. And so God, first of all, sets himself forth as an example. This is how you are to be merciful. And so he comes to Jonah And the first thing, this is your second thought on your notes, is God comes as the questioner. He asks Jonah a bunch of questions in the story. You see that in chapter number four, several times God says, hey, Jonah, are you you right for being angry? Do you think God knew that Jonah was wrong for being angry? So why does God come across with a question and not a statement? Could God not have just simply condemned Jonah in that moment? He could have absolutely condemned Jonah in that moment and likely got Jonah to do exactly what he wanted Jonah to do. However, he would have missed his he would have missed his heart. You see what God wants Jonah to do is God wants Jonah to discover to understand, to comprehend, to answer the questions that are being asked with the right answer from him. not because God is condemning him, not because God is 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 um is pointing out his sins here, but because he understands it. So God comes to Jonah, asks the questioner. He doesn't accuse Jonah, he just simply questions him. God is probing into the heart of Jonah. 
You know what the Bible says? That God is the one who searches the... God is the one who searches the hearts. He's probing into your heart as he's probing into Jonah's heart. This is how God deals with the wayward child. He then is merciful to him. Think about this. In all of this story, and then all of a sudden you have this narrative that says, and Jonah was there and he was uncomfortable and God appoints a plant to grow up over him and give him shade. That doesn't make any sense to me at all outside of the merciful grace of our God, that he would set up a plant to grow and give this wayward, rebellious child comfort for a a season at all, any season. And this just shows us the fact that God is merciful to Jonah and to us in the midst of our waywardness. Every one of us that's sitting here this morning is at some level wayward, It's true. And every day God shows us mercy. And every day God shows us grace. And he brings us to himself in in such a a caring, compassionate, fatherly-like way that it would make us all, if we could see it unfolding like we're seeing it unfolding here, it'd make us all cry. We could see things from God's perspective and then yet see how he responds to us, constantly building up little plants to shade us in our rebellion. That's how he works. God is merciful or God comes. He comes as an example. He comes as a questioner. He comes as merciful. And lastly, he comes as illustrator. He illustrates the story to to Jonah. He tells him the story, and he gives him the story of the plant and the plant dying. And he's just just working. He's he's, he's communicating. He's conversing with Jonah to get him to understand this truth to what he wants from him. And I just say this to you. That's how our God works. He's gentle with his children. He's kind. He's merciful. He's gracious. He doesn't leave us where we're at because he knows that that's dangerous. Jonah needed this experience, right? We need these experiences. But God is gentle in the process, isn't he? If you guys have been there before, you know that you can see in the journey where things are really, really difficult, you can see God's hand doing something to put a shade over your head to say, hey, listen, I want you to know that I'm here with you. You're not alone I'm here with you. I'm going to shade you through this difficult time, but I'm also going to teach you because you've got to learn. You can't stay in your waywardness. The most dangerous thing for a Christian is to be wayward from God. So he's literally doing what we need best, but he's what we need most, but he's doing it in such a way that it's kind and compassionate and gentle. That's the way our God works. He'll work that way with you. He is working that way with you. This is our God. The last thing this morning, the last thought is the solutions for an unrepentant heart. There are three things that I want you to consider about Jonah in regards to how do you solve this. If you're wayward, you know that you have a gracious God, a kind God that's going to teach you and not leave you in your waywardness. What are some things that you can do actively to help the process come to a close or to reach the goal, if you will? Number one is examination. The Lord asks Jonah twice. He says, is it right for you to be angry? 
What is, what is God asking Jonah to do? He's literally, this, the phrase in the Hebrew literally means, Jonah, examine yourself. Examine your own heart, Jonah. We read this morning in 1 Corinthians 11 where it talks about the Lord's Supper. He says, each man to examine himself. We're to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. There's this idea of self-examination that God is constantly pressing us to so that we would know our own heart. We would know where we were at. And we have to stop sometimes. And that's what, that's what he's saying to Jonah. Jonah, is your attitude right? And just think about that with me tomorrow when you're on Monday morning and you wake up and you've got to go to work and everything doesn't go your way and it's just a disaster and you're angry and you're upset and you're bitter and your boss is a jerk to you again and then you think in your mind, God's saying to you, is your attitude right? And all he's doing is this, he's just getting you to see. He wants you to see. He wants you to know and understand who you are and what you need. So he asked Jonah twice. He's like, Jonah, is it a, are you right for being angry? And God knew the answer. Just like when God came in the garden and said to Adam and Eve, where, where are you? God knew where they were at. He wanted them to admit where they were at. And so God says to Jonah, Jonah, is it okay? Are you, are, you, are you in the right for being angry? And he wants Jonah to examine his own heart. And I want you to examine your own heart this morning. I want you to examine your heart. God, am I wayward? Am I running from you? Maybe not by your actions. Maybe not God. Maybe God has your attention. Maybe even God has your respect and even your obedience. But, but does God have my heart? Does God have my heart to where that I don't need anything else but him? Does he have your heart? Your emotions will tell you that. Your attitudes will tell you that. Examination is number one. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? The second thing that I want you to consider is it's three words. I think I've got spaces for them on your outline. Listen, discern, and be honest. Listen to what God is saying to you. Listen to what God is saying to you. God is saying something to Jonah, and Jonah has to stop and listen. He has to stop and listen to God. Otherwise, he'll completely miss it. Jonah will completely miss it. If he ends at chapter number three and all of Nineveh is saved, it's a great blessing for Nineveh, but Jonah misses it because God is saying something to Jonah. And God is saying something to you this morning. And God is saying something to me this morning. We need to stop and listen to God. The Lord says to us, be still and know that I am God. And Satan tells us, be busy and never give yourself any time to be still. It's true. If you're not still, you will not know that he is God. He says, listen Listen to what God is saying. John 10, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. Make sure your ears are in tune to God's voice. Having spiritual ears through the study of his word, through listening to other wise counselors and leaders, make sure that you are in tune to what God's will, you're listening to him. 
Not only that, number one, listen to God's words. Number two, discern what God is showing you. Discern the plant. Discern the plant. The plant meant something, right? When a plant grows up and dies in Jonah's story, it means something. Is it possible that when plants grow up and die in our story, it means something? Is it possible that the events and the circumstances that we go through in life have a divine meaning to them? I would suggest to you that it's more than possible, that it is true. That everything that you go through in life has a divine story to it. It's like God is writing this story from heaven and he sees it all coming together and we look at it and we just don't see it. And God is saying to Jonah, look, I'm going to grow a plant up over you and it's going to die, but there's more to it than that whole plant thing. There's more to it. It's God is saying something to Jonah. So, so listen to God's words, discern what God is showing you through these experiences, through these um, parables in your life. And then number three in that thought, be honest about your situation and direction. Be honest about your situation. When God reveals something to you, like through this plant, like Jonah, you love plants more than you love people. All right, God. You're right. I love plants more than I love people. The next time you're going through life and you start murmuring about some plant and you walk by a soul and you don't share the gospel or give a track or even think of their soul, know this, God is saying to you and to me, you love your plants more than you love people. We're, we are not letting ourselves be honest with where we're at and we're missing what God has for us and he doesn't have our heart. Be honest about your situation, about your direction. Romans 12 and verse 3 says, For by the grace given to me I am, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with a sober judgment or with an honest judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. So, Number one is examination. Number two is listening, discerning, and being honest. And the last thing is just simply surrender. I'm going I'm to submit to you the end of this chapter that's not written, okay? It is my understanding, it is through, through study of other scholars' perspectives, and it is my belief that Jonah stops. Jonah, remember, Jonah is the author of this story. He's writing his own story. So it is my belief that the story stops in such an abrupt way, like with and many animals, Right? Because Jonah gets it. Jonah finally, this is literally a Job experience where God says to Job, Job, who are you? And goes through like chapters describing who Job is not. And Job finally says he puts his hand over his mouth and has nothing more to say. That's Jonah. This is totally an abrupt ending. And God says to Jonah in, in a question, he says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people? Jonah, listen, when you're pitying that plant, should I not pity this people? That He's like, this plant you haven't labored over. You did nothing for it, but you're, you're sorry for it. He's like, think of Nineveh. Every one of them bears my image. I created them. 
I love them. I've nourished them. I've, I've cared for them. I've protected them. I've done all of this for them. Should I not show them pity? 120,000 people there at least and lots of cattle. And you know what Jonah's response is? I believe finally. I get it. I don't have anything else to say. No more words. No continuation. No answer. No nothing. Just surrender. God, you can have my heart. I think Jonah's, I think Jonah's book ends so abruptly because God has Jonah's heart. And there's nothing more to say. And my call to us, my challenge to us this morning is that God would have our heart. And that when he says things and puts us through witnessing to our worst enemies, he says, I want your heart. It's not enough that you just witness to them, that you love them. I want your heart. Proverbs 23, 26 says, my son, give me your heart. My son, give me your heart. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. Thank you for Jonah. Thank you for using him to teach us so many things. Thank you for being so kind and gracious to him to be willing to teach him those lessons that he needed to learn to be in a right standing with you, learn to be surrendered, to learn to have given you his heart, not just his actions, not just his attention, not just his respect, but Lord, you want our heart. Thank you for letting us understand that this morning and help us, Lord God, to submit and surrender to you.